Heavenly Father, we've been singing about seeing you. About opening up our eyes and our ears. Lord, it seems ridiculous for some to try and see the invisible. But yet, Lord, we know that you're there. We know that you're a real God, that you really exist. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who finds themselves here, Lord, in strange circumstances. Who find themselves and their heart is empty and hurt and dark and lonely. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them about the person of Jesus. And I pray that we will all see Jesus a little bit more clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. You probably experienced the frustration, maybe yourself or other people that you know, as you point them to Jesus and they can't see Jesus. And you ask the question, why is it so difficult for you to get it? Gail B. Trafford wrote, and I quote, It is not the darkness that blocks your vision so much as what is between you and God. What is it that's between you and God this morning? Is it your religious tradition? Is it pride? Is it unbelief? Is it because you think that you have a lack of evidence? Pride lures us into living our lives apart from God and independent of His revelation. The proud person depends on himself or herself rather than on God. And this creates a kind of supernatural darkness. It, it creates a wicked blindness and a darkening of the heart. It was Augustine who said, if you believe in the gospel what you like and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe in, but yourself. I think that that's important. What part of the Bible is it that you agree with? The part that makes you happy? What part of the Bible do you disagree with? Well, guess what? That's the part that you need to look at and think about. John chapter 9 presents 
sixth of seven miracles recorded in John's Gospel. And remember, the, the meaning and the purpose of these miracles is to prove that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord. He is deity. He is the Jewish Messiah. And the first three signs pointed out how a person is saved. You'll remember in the miracle of water to wine through the Word. By faith, healing the nobleman's son. By grace, Jesus heals the man who is impotent by the side of the pool. The last four signs show the result of salvation. Satisfaction. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Peace. He stills the storm. Light. What we are looking at right now, he heals the blind man. And life. We will see that in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We need light. The Bible certainly points out that without light, we continue to walk in blindness. And we've seen the characteristics of the lost sinner and how Jesus saves the sinner. And then the controversy over the miracle of taking a man who was born blind and literally recreating eyes in his socket. And now we will see his confession of faith. The former blind man doesn't realize it. But the safest place for him is outside the Jewish temple. The Jews have cast him out, but Jesus has taken him in. You know, when I first became a Christian, I returned to the religious tradition that I had been born into, that I had been raised, that I had been educated, that I had been confirmed in. But it wasn't to last long. You see, like Paul, this man lost his religion only to find Jesus and salvation. And in finding Jesus and finding salvation, he finds his way to heaven. In John's account of the man's confession of faith, we see four characteristics that make for spiritual vision that give us the ability to see Jesus. The first, Jesus is the one who initiates the relationship. It is Jesus who takes the first step toward the sinner. And number two, the sinner's response. The blind man sees and understands in faith. It's a guarded faith, but it's faith nonetheless. But that faith results in the recognition of the identity of Jesus Christ and then ends with worship. And so we see in verse 35, the divine first move. Jesus says, well, it says in verse 35, John writes, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he, that is Jesus, had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Last week I shared with you a quote by Chrysostom, an early church father, who writing about this passage said, The Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. And you'll remember why the religious leaders threw him out of the temple. They threw him out of the temple because he confessed that Jesus was a man who was a prophet and that he came from God. Has your testimony of Jesus Christ 
separated you from your family and from your friends, the testimony of Jesus will often create a division among the people that you care the most about, but it will cause you to grow closer to Jesus. William Barclay wrote, Jesus is always true to the man who is true to him. I grew up in a religious tradition. And in that religious tradition, when I went back to that religious tradition, and I started bringing my family and friends to church, the most amazing thing happened. The priest came up to me and he said, Well now, Mr. Gina Church, it's so good that you're bringing so many of the young people back to the church. What do we need to bring more young people to the church? And I said, we need to ditch this catechism and we need to tell them that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that they can experience friendship and fellowship with God in the person of Christ. And we should start teaching them the Bible. And you know what happened? He asked me to leave. He called me a Jesus freak. You know, at the time, it wasn't funny. It was painful. It hurt. I had been born in this tradition and raised in this tradition and and educated in this tradition. It wasn't funny. It was painful. Because I was drawn outside of the circle that I thought was necessary in order for me to have a right relationship with God. I thought I had to have a right relationship with the religious tradition that I grew up in. And this is exactly the same circumstance that this former blind man finds himself up. Remember, he was born a Jew and raised a Jew. He's educated a Jew. He goes to the Jewish temple. He makes the Jewish sacrifice. He reads from the Bible and the Hebrew text, and he believes that quite apart from this tradition, he can't know God and he will never know the Messiah. That's his belief. But Jesus is going to show up. Jesus is going to take the first step. And by the way, if God didn't take the first step, no one would be saved. Sinners simply don't have the ability to locate God. The criminal doesn't really seek friendship with the cop. When the criminal is committing crimes, do you think that's when you go for the person with the badge? And the sinner doesn't seek the Lord. Because the sinner realizes... That they're a sinner. No wonder Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've all become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then I will raise him up on the last day in John 6.44. You'll remember in John 15.16, Jesus said, you didn't choose me. That's what he told his disciples. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Salvation begins with the Father choosing you. 
and continues with the Son saving you and the Holy Spirit regenerating you. And the truth is, if I can talk a person into receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then someone a little more clever than me, someone a little more articulate than me, someone who can hold your attention and draw your attention and then persuade you in a different direction, can point you in a different direction. That's why you have to come to Christ. Because it's the Father who's drawing you. It's not me. Salvation depends on God's sovereign grace and then God's gracious power. Some of the third and fourth and fifth century manuscripts read, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Whether the text should say Son of Man or Son of God, we know in the New Testament that Jesus, on a fairly regular basis, calls himself the Son of Man because he does so to identify with you and to identify with me. Some 80 times he's called the Son of Man in the New Testament. And the title identifies Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets. Do you understand what Jesus is in effect saying to this man? He is asking him, do you believe with certainty in the promise of Israel's Messiah? And make no mistake about it, when he's hearing those words, he's asking and answering the question, I've just been thrown out of the temple. I'm not welcome in the place where I grew up. Is there hope for somebody like me? We find a second glorious truth in this verse, and and that is that loyalty brings revelation. Jesus knew that this man was being persecuted and isolated because of him. The person who is true to Jesus, listen carefully, invites the revelation of Jesus. God isn't in the business of trying to keep things from you, but to give things to you. Jesus not only reveals himself to those who identify with him, He rewards them. And do you know what he rewards them with? His presence. His words. That's exactly what's happening in the text. This man receives a richer revelation. And what's the penalty of being loyal to Jesus? The penalty for being loyal to Jesus, you might be ridiculed. You might be vilified. You might be persecuted. You might be prosecuted. You might be imprisoned. You may even be killed. And now all of a sudden being drawn outside of the circle where you used to be accepted, you begin to understand what it means for many of you. The moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it initiated a battle with your mom, with your dad, with your brothers, with your sisters, with your family. In the tradition in which I grew up, you can imagine, uh, my father's from Sicily. I'm the oldest of five children. I am the person who holds out the hope. Every Catholic family wants one person in that family to be a priest. And for my family, it was me. My grandma, my nona, would say, Gino, we need a priest in the family. 
can imagine when the priest called me a Jesus freak and he asked me not to come back. But this created a crisis of sorts for my family. Jim, how can you believe Jim? How can you live in the church? And I said, no, man. I didn't leave the church. I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entered into a friendship and a fellowship with Christ. The former blind man has a problem. He's been kicked out of the religious tradition. The place where he expects Israel's Messiah to show up. But Jesus shows up. In a remarkable way. Look at verse 36. He answered and said to him, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus makes a direct appeal to this man to believe. And you'll note that in this direct appeal appeal to the former blind man, he makes further inquiry. He asks one more question. Who is he, Lord? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He doesn't just go, he doesn't go, Lord, is it you? He, he basically has a heart that has been prepared by God. Remember, remember what has happened in the progress of the chapter. The man has been healed. His sight has been restored. He already perceives that Jesus is a prophet in verse 17. He also has already declared that this man, Jesus, comes from God in verse 33. The, the former blind man is convinced that Jesus is a messenger from God, and he's convinced that he has a message from God. Yes, salvation begins with God. Yes, it's initiated by God. But it results in a response of faith, and that's exactly what's happening in this particular passage, and the same is true for you. God's been preparing your heart. God's been preparing your heart for this moment. You've always known that that Jesus is the Lord. You grew up in a religious tradition that honored Him. But you've never really known Him. You'll remember, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, repent, that means turn from your sin and believe the gospel. In the opening chapter of John's Gospel, we, we read, But as many as received unto them, he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. And of course, the most quoted, the most memorable verse in all of the Bible, that whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you understand what's happened? The miracle has forced this blind man to take Jesus seriously. And some of you have been the recipient of a miracle. God spared your life when you didn't have to. God kept you alive under the most unusual of circumstances. God has given you chance after chance after chance, but it isn't simply the presence of a miracle that results in salvation. Signs and miracles in and of themselves do not constitute saving faith. 
A lot of people have a superficial faith. That is, they believe on the surface, but they don't believe way down deep where it matters most. John Henry Newman said, We can believe what we choose. We are answerable for what we choose to believe. He's right on both counts. You have come here this morning and you've said in your own heart, I choose what I want to believe. And you're exactly right. And make no mistake about it. God is going to hold you accountable for for what you believe. And if what you believe isn't in Jesus, you're going to, in a few short moments, find out what the consequences of that would mean. And look what it says in verse 37. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. You're looking at him. Now, that statement in and of itself isn't so remarkable, except when you consider the fact that Jesus has taken sunken sockets, empty caverns that were inside of his skull and created eyeballs for him. Hey, you know the guy who who took a a piece of dirt cloth, spit on it, made it into a little marble, popped it into the socket, and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and he washed, and he comes back with eyeballs? Talk about some supernatural LASIK. You've seen him. You're talking with him was Colin Urquhart who said, if you accept the authority of Jesus in your life, then you accept the authority of His words. The former blind man sees Jesus because Jesus made his eyes. Do you realize that the eye is one of the most complex organic objects in the known universe? It moves an average of 100,000 times a day. Numerous muscles and tear ducts are in place to keep the eye moist, protected, and functioning. Our eye processes 1.5 million bits of information simultaneously, and it provides 80% of the sensory stimulation that's sent to the brain. Eyes receive light. Images traveling 186,000 miles per second through the iris, which opens and closes to let in just the right amount of light. These images travel through a lens made of transparent cells, which focuses on the retina in the back of the eyeball. The retina covers less than one square inch of surface, yet this square inch of surface contains 137 million light-sensitive receptor cells, 130 million rod cells, which is designed to see black and white, and 7 million cone cells, which allows for color vision. Finally, this light that comes into your eyes at 186,000 miles per second slows to 300 miles per hour, enters your brain, and then translates it to your brain. 
Do you realize that these facts are the things that created the most amount of consternation in Charles Darwin when he was considering his own theory of evolution? Because he couldn't. He couldn't for the life of him think of a mechanism where the eyes evolved. Can you imagine only having 2% of an eye? Or 10% of an eye? Or 20% of an eye? There are five mechanisms in a mouse track, trap, and you need all five mechanisms for that trap to work. In order for the eye to function, all of the component parts of the eye must function. Jesus said, the same person who created your eyes has given you the ability to see has created an opportunity for you to look at me. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. I have two grandmas, one on my grandfather's side, my nonna, and my granny on my mother's side. My granny was fond of saying, there's nothing so annoying as arguing with a person who knows what he's talking about. My granny was a fun lady to be around. I've told you before in the past, uh, she grew up during the worst depression. My granny never even saw a motion picture movie until World War II. And when TV was invented, it was amazing. My grandpa thought that color was a fad and that it would pass away. My granny would watch TV and remember the commercial, the Campbell's Soup commercial? Stir up the Campbell's Soup is good food. And my granny would say, soup ain't good food. Soup's what you eat when you ain't got good food. Open your eyes. Open your eyes and see Jesus. When the Samaritan woman made reference to the coming Messiah in John chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus said, I who speak to you am He. In John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The former sightless man sees Jesus. The former blind man first called him a man, Jesus, and, and then in verse 11. And then he calls him a prophet in verse 17. From God in verse 31. He reveals himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God in verses 35 through 38. He is seen with the eyes of faith and he's listened with the ears of faith, not carelessly or critically like the religious leaders who are looking for an excuse to deny the identity of Jesus. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, There are three roads to belief. Reason, habit, and revelation. Does he believe in Jesus by faith? Yes. But he also believes in Jesus by reason. He has very good reasons for believing that, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Because this man has done what has never been done before. He has taken a man who was born blind and given him sight. And then revelation. 
with that sight comes the presence of Jesus. The former blind man thinks with his brain, sees with his eyes, and believes in his heart. Joseph Fort Newton said, belief is truth held in the mind, and faith is fire in the heart. Do you believe Jesus in the mind, but you don't have fire in your heart? Do you really know him? The Spirit of God opened up his heart to the truth. And look what he says. Lord, I believe. Has the Spirit of God opened your heart to the truth? In Proverbs 4.18 it says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto a perfect day. The New Testament says that the Christian has light in her heart. Light in his heart. Second Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the Lord God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We are the light of the world, it says in Matthew 5, 14. We walk in the light, it says in John 1, 1. We produce the fruit of light, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. And when the man said, Lord, I believe this whole world changed. Everything in his life changed. When you said, Lord, I believe, did everything in your life change? Was your mind different? Was your heart different? Were your thoughts different? I'll never forget the day that I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The preacher was preaching from John's Gospel in the 11th chapter. You know the familiar story. Lazarus is dead. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, are grief-stricken over the death of their brother. Jesus has lingered. He finally shows up. They are weeping and crying. And they said, if Jesus, if you had only shown up, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus said the very famous words, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And you remember in John chapter 11, he orders the stone to be removed from the orifice of the tomb in which Lazarus lay. But he's been dead for four days. And one of the girls says to Jesus, but Lord, he stinketh in the old King James. The body has begun to decay and decompose. The body is doing what all bodies do when they die. When the life leaves the body, it begins to decay and decompose. And I'll never forget when I heard those words because the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart on that day. And the Holy Spirit said, You stinketh. And I went, Not your underarms, your heart. And it was true. There was something awful. There was something wicked. There was something wrong. There was something empty. There was something broken. There was something profoundly and specifically dead inside of me. 
And this thought entered my brain. I think from the Holy Spirit. If Jesus can take a dead man and restore his dead flesh and bring him back to life, I ask the question, can you change me? Can you give me a new heart? Can you forgive me and fill me? It wasn't a surprising thought in my mind that I should go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. My wickedness and my sin caused me to deserve a life separated from God forever. What was really interesting to me wasn't the thought or the threat of hell, but it was the thought that God could love somebody like me and forgive somebody like me and change somebody like me. And that day I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And look what happened in verse 38. It says, and he worshipped him. With the revelation of Jesus came the reality that Jesus was more than just a man and more than just from God and more than just a prophet. There was something extraordinary about him. And worship is perhaps the final stage of belief. Belief in the true Jesus results in worship of the Jesus of the New Testament. And the word worship, by the way, is an Anglo-Saxon word, which means worship or worthiness. The most commonly translated word for worship in the New Testament, even though there are several, is proskuneo. It means to kiss or to kiss towards. It was from the Greek tradition that a sovereign king would extend his hand and the slave would kiss his hand as a mark of reverence, as a mark of respect, but also as an implication of affection. And so with the absence of spiritual darkness comes the light of who Jesus is. And the Bible is a book about worship. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, you'll remember that Moses has an encounter with the living God. And you'll remember in, in, Mo, in Exodus chapter 3, it, it says, God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Because the place you're standing in is holy ground. Worship is first and foremost an encounter with the true God, the holy God, the living God. At God's command, Moses removes his sandals. But do you know what else he does? He covers his face and he gets down in the dirt as an act of reverence to communicate his own unworthiness and the holiness of God. And for the person who fails to worship Jesus, it's proof positive that they're still lingering in the dark. That their heart is still in a dark place. It's still in a blind place. By the way, should Jesus be worshipped? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, you'll remember that when Jesus was tempted by the devil in those series of temptations, at the end, the devil said, fall down and worship me and I'll give you everything that you see. And in Matthew 4, 10, Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
Do you know what? When Jesus was a little baby in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi worshipped him. When the boat was sinking and Peter is lifted out of the water into the boat in Matthew chapter 14, in verse 22, it says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When Jesus rises from the dead, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, it says that the gathered witnesses gathered there and they worshipped him. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is God. Or the Bible is so filled with hopeless contradictions that it can't be trusted. C.S. Lewis writes, Among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he were God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Hindus of India, anyone might say that he's a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, couldn't mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside of the world who made it and who is infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that concept, you will see what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips, unquote. I'm the Savior. I'm the Lord. On God. There isn't anything more amazing. Do you realize it, that worship is possible by simply reading the Bible in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16? By reading His Word and loving His Word in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. By teaching God's Word, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Do you realize that we worship when we preach God's Word? You might think of worship as simply singing songs, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, it's when we also declare not just simply the song, but the substance of the song, when we pray God's word in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, when we receive God's Son in John chapter 1, verse 11, do you realize it constitutes an act of worship when you repent of your sin and you turn to the Savior? But the same light, the same burning light that fills the eye and the heart and brings hope and salvation can also burn you and blind you. This is the meaning in verse 39. Look again. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see And that those who see may be made blind. Now, this passage is certainly difficult. And it's even more difficult unless it's read in its context. 
Leon Morris, the great Bible scholar, says, and I quote, John evidently wants us to see that the activity of Jesus as the light of the world inevitably results in judgment on those whose natural habitat is darkness because they oppose the light and they bring condemnation on themselves accordingly, unquote. For the person who admits his or her darkness, for the person who confesses the lonely emptiness and the persistence of sin, for the person who says, there's, some, there's something wrong with me. There's something broken inside of me. There's something empty inside of me. There's something dead inside of me. The Bible hopes, holds out hope of light you can embrace the light William Barclay writes quote whenever a man is confronted with Jesus that man at once passes a judgment on himself if he sees in Jesus nothing to desire nothing to admire nothing to love he's condemned himself When you see Jesus, what do you see? When you see Jesus, what do you see? Do you see hope? Do you see forgiveness? Do you see love? Do you see heaven? If you see nothing, admire nothing, want nothing, then you've condemned yourself. And look what it says in verse 40. Then some of the parashim, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were with him, heard these words and they said, Are we blind also? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, believe that they see all too clearly. Oh, we see you, Jesus. We see you for who you are. Oh, we see who you are and we see what you are. Do you remember what they believe about him? Earlier in the chapter, he's not a God. He breaks our religious tradition. Look at this. He's chumming up with a guy that we've kicked out of the church. Because they claim to see. Because they reject the evidence. They refuse Christ. They refuse Him. They refuse to see Him. They refuse to receive Him. And remember, the Gospel brings different reactions from different hearts. The blind sinner receives the truth and sees, and the self-righteous religious person rejects the truth and sears and cauterizes his or her heart. It's, it's as if they take a white-hot poker and they stick it in the spiritual eye of their heart and they're no longer able to see. Have I ever told you the story of St. Francis of Assisi? 
In St. Francis of Assisi, early on in his ministry, he contracted a deadly disease in his eyes, and he went to go see a doctor, and the doctor warned him that if he continued to leave the eye unattended, that the infection would leap from one eye to the other, and that he himself would find himself blind. And so he asks the doctor to do what is necessary to restore his sight, and the doctor takes a white, hot, iron poker, and he slowly brings it to Francis's eyes, and he cauterizes the eye and burns out the socket, and he screams and screams and screams. And then he's quiet. And he doesn't complain. And the doctor said, I would have expected more complaint from a person who's just got his eye burned out with a hot iron. And Francis said, when I became a Christian, I thought following Jesus would be difficult. I had no idea that it would be this easy. What? What are you saying? Because it isn't his physical sight that he valued. Oswald Chambers wrote, Darkness is my point of view, my right to myself. Light is God's point of view. Now we understand what Jesus meant when he said that he came to give light. The man who is conscious of his own blindness and eyes can be opened, and who can be led more deeply and deeply into spiritual truth is going to be okay. The man who thinks he knows it all, the man who doesn't realize he cannot see, the man who is truly blind is beyond help and beyond hope. There are a lot of dangerous games that we can play, but there's none more dangerous than rejecting the light and look at verse 41. And Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, If you were blind, you would have no sin. Do you understand what you're reading? The religious leaders fully expected that Jesus would accuse them of being blind. But do you know what else the religious leaders fully expected? that they would be exempt from judgment. I'm going to repeat that. The religious leaders fully expected that they would be exempt from judgment. We are Jews. Our fathers were Jews. We were born into Judaism. We were raised in Judaism. We read the Bible in the Hebrew. We go to the temple. We observe the sacrifices. We observe the rules and the regulations. We perform the rituals. We observe the law of Moses. There's absolutely no way that we can be condemned. If the Pharisees had been brought up in ignorance, if they 
were ignorant, they couldn't be condemned. The condemnation lay in the fact that they knew so much. They claimed to see so well, and they failed to recognize God's Son when He came. Has your pride kept you from Jesus? Has your religious tradition kept you from Jesus? The law, that responsibility is the other side of privilege, is written into life. And look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 3. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. There's a tragic chasm between faith and rejection, between light and darkness. So what makes Jesus different? For centuries, religious leaders have come and gone, yet Jesus makes himself the issue of what it means to have a right relationship with God. Other religious leaders have made their teaching the centerpiece of their message. They've made their religion the centerpiece of their message. Jesus makes himself the issue. He asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he doesn't do it because he's experiencing some sort of psychological insecurity. It's because he is the issue. Jesus demonstrates authority by forgiving sins. It is Jesus who performs the miracle. It's Jesus who casts out the demons. It's Jesus who conquers death. And when Jesus rises from the dead, an event that no other religious leader has ever done, it gives us hope. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me Have you examined your own spiritual eyesight lately? There aren't charts on a wall to help you take the test. It's an attitude inside of your heart. Is the Holy Spirit showing up inside of you? Revealing the nooks and crannies of the spiritual blindness. Are you dimming your ability to see the light of the world? There is a, there's an illness that's called retinitis pigmentosa, which causes the periphery of vision to collapse, and it becomes narrower and narrower. So all of a sudden you see life and light like it's at the bottom of, of a tunnel. Do you still see the light at the end of the tunnel? What are you more likely to see? The rules? Or the ruler? Religion or relationship? What preoccupies you the most? Doing what's right or loving Jesus rightly? Catherine Agnes May Kelly wrote. Oh, make me understand it. Help me take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. I hope you understand it. I hope you can take it in. What Jesus has done for you.
He is Savior. But He's also Creator. He is Master. But He's also Majestic, Eternal God. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray for that person who has prayed the same prayer as the former blind man. I believe. I believe. I believe and it's changed my life. But I also pray, Lord, for the person who finds themselves in a dark place, in an empty place, in a dead place, in a lonely place. Far from you. Far from light. Far from love. Far from forgiveness. Far from hope. Far from heaven. They look into the future and they see despair. They look into the future and they see uncertainty. They look into the future and they see darkness. Lord, I pray that you would move on their heart. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come to them and speak to them and invite them to consider Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sin, the forgiveness of Jesus, the hope that's in Jesus. Lord, we know you initiate the friendship, but we must respond in faith. Is that you? Have you ever responded in faith to Jesus? Will you? It's as easy as acknowledging Him. Will you respond to Jesus? Will you identify with Jesus? Will you accept the consequences of what that identification might mean? That you're drawn outside the circle of other people's expectations. Are you willing to have Jesus and abandon everything else. If that's you, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. God knows your heart. Praise the Lord. God knows what you need. Is that you? Just slip up your hand. God sees your heart. He sees the emptiness and the darkness. He wants to fill it with Himself. Won't you let Him? We're going to give you an opportunity to come forward... We're going to sing the song, and, and, and you might ask, Oh, Gina, why are you doing this? Because Jesus, when he called his disciples, he called them openly and publicly. When Jesus confronted this blind, formerly blind man, he did it openly. And in the public, he found him, and Jesus has found you. And so as we sing the song, I'm going to invite you to come and stand right here in front of me. So it's going to only take a few minutes. I'm just going to pray with you for just a few moments, and then I'm going to let you go.